Eternal Security by Arthur W. Pink Forward Eternal security is the teaching that God shall, with no uncertainty, bring into their eternal inheritance those who are actually justified, delivered from the curse of the law, and have the righteousness of Christ reckoned to their account, and who have been begotten by the Spirit of God. And further, it is the teaching that God shall do this in a way glorifying to himself, in harmony with his nature, and consistent with the teaching of Scripture concerning the nature of those who are called saints. Why is this important? Why is it important for every Christian to know that once God has taken him for his own, he will never let him go? Arthur W. Pink gives many reasons for this in this book on eternal security. For one thing, it is necessary in order to strengthen young and fearful Christians in their faith by safeguarding the honor and integrity of God and His Word. And it is also necessary in order to preserve one of the grand and distinctive blessings of the gospel, which to deny is to attack the very foundations of the believer's comfort and assurance. But let the reader be warned right from the start. Those who think that they are opposed to what Pink finds in Scripture may be surprised to find themselves agreeing with him, and those on the other side may find that Pink has gone way beyond the mere statement and proof of a doctrine to implications that they may have to accept for their own lives. The author is no shallow student of the word, but asks, us to follow out its teaching so as to relate it properly to God's scheme of things. It is important for the reader to avoid wrong impressions as he begins to read. The book has been titled Eternal Security because today that is the name given to the doctrine dealt with in this book. But historically, the doctrine was called Perseverance of the Saints and Pink himself preferred that title. But whether it is called eternal security or perseverance of the saints, it is the same doctrine that has been held down through the years. We must not take issue with him, because at some points he used different words from what we are accustomed to. As he begins... The reader may also mistakenly get the impression that Pink is arguing against eternal security at the same time he claims to be for it. We assure the reader that this is not so. Pink is not attempting to undermine this doctrine through trickery, not in the least. If then he doesn't seem clear, we ask the reader to be patient and give him a chance to explain himself, especially in chapter 7. We, as Pink did, should realize that many doctrines of Scripture cannot be fairly stated as simple slogans. Eternal security is one of these. Let us endeavor to study out this doctrine to its final conclusion, since it is so important to our welfare as we walk the Christian life. It may help to know that Pink originally came out from a group of rather sectarian, hyper-Calvinistic Baptists in England.
He clearly reacted strongly to some of their distinctive tenets. This is especially true of their antinomian tendencies, in which they inclined toward the view that since all of man's actions and circumstances are predestined, a Christian need not bother with his responsibilities. God will bring all that is needed into his life so that he will automatically be directed to do what he wants. But though he rejected this kind of thinking very strongly, Pink's book, Practical Christianity, gives a very helpful, balanced view. He did not overreact. He remained unashamedly Calvinistic, yet it was his desire to avoid all lopsidedness, and it is for that reason that he may truly be said to be of value to all. No matter what he wrote on, he gave careful consideration to all who, in any way, tried to base their view on Scripture. Pink was unusually thorough in his writings. One can read dozens of books by other writers on a subject and find that questions have been left unanswered by them all. Not so with Pink. It rarely happens that he will not deal with a pressing question. He decried superficiality and compromise. The result was a full but practical treatment of each subject he wrote on. Yet he did not get bogged down in philosophical theology. Pink was first and foremost a careful expositor of scripture, and this carried over in his handling of doctrine. He did not quote a text of scripture and leave it up to the reader to make the connections. Rather, he usually took the time to deal with it positively, relating each part to the subject and establishing beyond the question that the particular scripture applies. He was also a master in showing the meaning of a text of scripture by a careful consideration of its context. Time after time he demonstrates in this way that it cannot mean what some have claimed. Thus he avoids the proof text method of developing a doctrine. The reader will see this for himself in this book. Eternal security is a doctrine that complements and completes other truths. It is the truth which establishes a Christian in assurance of salvation. The doctrine of election in itself cannot do this. Justification cannot do this. The doctrine of sanctification cannot do this. Not even the doctrine of glorification does so. Yet, each of these is incomplete without eternal security. Election, justification, sanctification, and glorification are all hypothetical, mere possibilities until eternal security complements and completes them by showing how they are applied to specific individuals. And it is also practical because it brings believers to assurance of salvation, which, according to many scripture passages, they are to have. There is, however, the possibility of self-deception. Assurance of salvation must be based on a right understanding of what God's Word teaches concerning eternal security. D.L. Moody told a story that illustrates the danger. A drunk 
stopped Moody one time and said, Don't you remember me? I'm the man you saved here two years ago. Well, said Moody, it must have been me, because the Lord certainly didn't do it. Too many are saved by men and not saved by God. In other words, one can have assurance of salvation like the drunk without being saved. We must contend for eternal security for those who are really saved, who are born anew and have been changed within. This is what Arthur W. Pink explains so well in this book. The material for this book was taken from a series of 34 articles in Pink's Studies in the Scriptures, Volumes 21 through 23, written under the title, The Saints, Perseverance, and first published as a separate book under that title in 1972. Chapter 1, Introduction In previous volumes, we have expounded at some length, though not in this precise order, the great truths of divine election or predestination unto salvation, the atonement or perfect satisfaction which Christ rendered unto the law on behalf of his people, fallen man's total impotency unto good, the miracle of regeneration whereby the elect who are born into this world dead in trespasses and sins are quickened into newness of life, justification by faith whereby the believing sinner is delivered from the curse of the law, the righteousness of Christ being reckoned to his account the believer's sanctification, whereby he is set apart unto God, constituted a temple of the Holy Spirit, delivered from the reigning power of sin, and made meet for heaven. It is therefore fitting that we should now take up the complementary and completing truth of the final perseverance of the saints, or the infrustrable certainty of their entrance into the inheritance purchased for them by Christ, and unto which they have been begotten by the Spirit. This blessed subject has been an occasion for fierce strife in the theological world, and nowhere is the breach between Calvinists and Arminians more apparent than in their diverse views of this doctrine. The former regard it as the very salt of the covenant, as one of the principal mercies purchased by the redemption of Christ, as one of the richest jewels which adorns the gospel's crown, as one of the choicest cordials for the reviving of fainting saints, as one of the greatest incentives to practical holiness. But with the latter, it is the very reverse. Arminians regard this doctrine as an invention of the devil, as highly dishonoring to God, as a poisoning of the gospel fountain, as giving license to self-indulgence and being subversive of all real piety. In this instance, it is impossible to seek a golden mean between two extremes, for one party must be extremely right, and the other extremely wrong. While we have no doubt whatever in which of those two camps the truth is to be found, yet we are far from allowing that Calvinists 
have always presented this doctrine in its scriptural proportions. Yea, it is our firm conviction that during the last two or three generations especially, it has been dealt with by many novices in such a manner as to do far more evil than good. Large numbers of men have contended for the security of the saints in such a crude and lopsided way that not a few godly souls were stumbled, and in their revolt against such extremism supposed their only safeguard was to reject the whole subject in toto. Such a course was wrong. If some amateur would-be bakers turn out uneatable loaves, that is no reason why I should henceforth decline all bread. I should be the loser if I acted so radically. We have no sympathy whatever with the bald and unqualified declaration, once saved, always saved. In a publication issued by a widely known Bible institute appears the following. I went to the death cell of that condemned man in prison a few days ago. I went to tell him of a pardon from my king. I had no right to offer him a pardon from the state, but I could tell him of the one who took his place on Calvary's cross, offering eternal redemption from the penalty of sin, so that he could be justified before the judge of all the earth in the court of heaven for all the endless ages. Thank God, I found that man clear on the plan of salvation. For years ago, under the ministry, he had accepted Jesus as his personal Savior. But through the years, he had grown cold and indifferent. He had lost his fellowship with his Lord, not his salvation. And the result was a life of sin. It took an awful experience to turn him from his self-willed way. But as I talked with him in his prison cell, I was convinced that he was born again and repentant for his crime. While it lies entirely outside our providence to form any judgment as to the eternal destiny of that murderer, yet a few comments on the preacher's account of the above incident seem to be called for. What impression is likely to be made on the mind of the average light-headed professor by the reading of such a case? What effect is it calculated to produce upon those church members who are walking arm-in-arm arm with the world? First, we are told that this murderer was clear on the plan of salvation. So also is the devil. But what does such mental knowledge avail him? Next, it is said that years before this condemned man had accepted Jesus as his personal Savior under the ministry of a certain well-known revivalist. But before any soul can receive Christ as Savior, he must first throw down the weapons of his rebellion, repent of his sins, and surrender to Christ as Lord. The Savior is the Holy One of God who saves His people from their sins. Matthew 1:21, And not in their sins. Who saves them from the love and dominion of their sins. How different was the preaching of Spurgeon from that of the cheap Jack evangelists who have followed him. Said he, 
Go not to God and ask for mercy with sin in my hand. What would you think of the rebel who appeared before the face of his sovereign and asked for pardon with the dagger sticking in his belt and with the declaration of his rebellion on his breast? Surely he would deserve double doom for thus mocking his monarch while he pretended to be seeking mercy? If a wife has forsaken her husband, do you think she would have the impudence with brazen forehead to come back and ask his pardon, leaning on the arm of her paramour? Yet so it is with you, perhaps asking for mercy and going on in sin, praying to be reconciled to God, and yet harboring and indulging your lusts. Cast away your sin, or he cannot hear you. If you lift up unholy hands with a lie in your right hand, prayer is worthless on your lips. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 1860 Returning to the above incident, this preacher declares of the man in the condemned cell, but through the years he had grown cold and indifferent. He had lost his fellowship with his Lord, not his salvation, and the result was a life of sin. Such a statement is a flat contradiction in terms. Salvation and sin are opposites. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Second Corinthians 5.17 Divine salvation is a supernatural work which produces supernatural effects. It is a miracle of grace which causes the wilderness to blossom as the rose. It is known by its fruits. It is a lie to call a tree good if it bears evil fruit. Justification is evidenced by sanctification. The new birth is made manifest by a new life. Where one makes a profession of being saved and then follows it with a life of sin, it is a case of the dog turning again to his vomit and the washed sow to her wallowing in the mire. Second Peter 2.22 Before dismissing this case, a word should be said upon the preacher's statement. I could tell him of the one who took his place on Calvary's cross, which occurs, be it noted, at the beginning of the narrative. Surely the first thing to press upon a murderer would be the awfulness of his condition to remind him that he had not only grievously wronged a fellow creature but had sinned against the Holy One to faithfully set before him the solemn fact that in a few days he would have to appear before the divine judge. Then he could speak of the amazing grace of God, which had provided a Savior for sinners, even the very chief of sinners, and that he is freely offered to all by the gospel on the terms of repentance and faith. But the scriptures nowhere warrant us to tell any indifferent, impenitent sinner that Christ took his place on the cross. The substitutionary work of Christ is a truth for the comfort of believers and not a sop for unbelievers. Oh, the ignorance and confusion now obtaining in Christendom. 
In the New Testament, the salvation of God is presented under three tenses, past, present, and future, as a work begun, Philippians 1, 6, but not completed in a moment of time. Who hath saved us? 2 Timothy 1, 9, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, 12. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Romans 13:11. These verses do not refer to three different salvations, but to three distinct phases and stages of salvation. Salvation as an accomplished fact, as a present process, and as a future prospect. First, God saves from the pleasure of sin, causing the heart to loathe what it formerly loved. That which is displeasing to God is made bitter to the soul, and sin becomes its greatest grief and burden. Next, faith is communicated by the Spirit, and the penitent sinner is enabled to believe the gospel, and thereby he is saved from the penalty of sin. Then it is he enters upon the Christian life, wherein he is called upon to fight the good fight of faith. For there are enemies, both within and without, which seek to bring about his destruction. For that fight, God has provided adequate armor. Ephesians 6:11, which the Christian is bidden to take unto himself. For that fight, he is furnished with effective weapons. But these he must make good use of. For that fight, spiritual strength is available. 2 Timothy 2, 1. Yet, it has to be diligently and trustfully sought. It is in this fight, a lifelong process, a conflict in which no furloughs are granted. The Christian is being saved from the power of sin. In it he receives many wounds, but he betakes himself to the great physician for healing. In it he is often cast down, but by grace he is enabled to rise again. Finally, he shall be saved from the presence of sin, for at death the believer is forever rid of his evil nature. Now it is that third aspect of salvation which concerns us in this present series of articles, namely the believer's perseverance, his perseverance in the fight of faith. The doctrine which is to be before us relates to the Christians being saved from the power of indwelling sin during the interval which elapses between his being saved from its penalty and the moment when he will be saved from its presence. Between his being saved from hell and his actual entrance into heaven, he needs saving from himself, saving from this evil world in which he is still left, saving from the devil who as a roaring lion goes about seeking whom he may devour. The journey from Egypt to Canaan lies not for the most part through green pastures and by the still waters, but across an arid desert with all its trials and testings, and few who left that house of bondage reached the land of milk and honey. The great majority fell in the wilderness through their unbelief. 
types of numerous professors who begin well but fail to endure unto the end. There are multitudes in Christendom today deluded with the idea that a mere historical faith in the gospel ensures their reaching heaven, who verily suppose they have received Christ as their personal Savior simply because they believe that he died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all those who repudiate their own righteousness and trust in him. They imagine that if, under the influence of religious emotion and the pressing appeals of an evangelist, and assured that John 3.16 means what it says, they were persuaded to become Christians, that therefore all is now well with them, that having obtained a ticket for glory, they may, like passengers on a train, relax and go to sleep confident that in due time they shall arrive at their desired destination. But such deceptions Satan chloroforms myriads into hell. So widespread is this deadly delusion that one who undertakes to expose its sophistry is certain to be regarded by many as a heretic. The Christian life commences amid the throes of the new birth, under acute travail of soul. When the Spirit of God begins His work in the heart, conscience is convicted. The terrors of the law are felt. The wrath of a sin-hating God becomes real. As the requirements of divine holiness begins to be apprehended, the soul, so long accustomed to having its own way, kicks against the pricks. And only in the day of God's power is it made willing. Psalm 110.3 To take the yoke of Christ upon it. And then it is that the young believer, conscious of the plague of his own heart, fearful of his own weakness and instability, aware of the enmity of the devil against him, anxiously cries out, How shall I be able to keep from drowning in such a world as this? What provision has God made that I shall not perish on my way to everlasting bliss? The Lord has done great things for me, whereof I am glad. But unless he continues to exert his sovereign power on my behalf, I shall be lost. Moreover, as the young Christian holds on his way, he observes how many of those who took up a Christian profession walk no more in the paths of righteousness, having returned to the world. This stumbles him and makes him ask, Shall I also make shipwreck of the faith? Ah, uh, none stand more sure and safe than those who feel they cannot stand whose cry is, Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. Psalm 119.117 Happy is the man who feareth always. Proverbs 28.14 Happy the soul who is possessed of that holy fear, which drives him to the Lord, keeps him vile in his own eyes, and causes him to ever depend upon the promise and grace of a faithful God, which makes him rejoice with trembling, and tremble with hope. In the case which we have just supposed, and it is one which is true to life, we discover an additional reason for taking up the present subject. 
It is necessary that the young and fearing Christian should be further strengthened in the faith, that he should be informed the good shepherd does not leave his lambs undefended in the midst of wolves, that full provision is made for their safety. Yet it is at this stage especially that heavenly wisdom is needed by the instructor if he is to be of real help. On the one hand, he must be careful not to cast pearls before swine, and on the other, he must not be deterred from giving to the children of God their rightful and needful bread. If he must be on his guard against ministering unlawful comfort to carnal professors, he must also see to it that legitimate comforts and cordials are not withheld from saints with feeble knees and whose hands hang down because of their discouragements. Each of the dangers we have alluded to will be avoided by due attention unto the terms of our theme and an amplification thereof. It is the final perseverance of the saints we shall write about, the enduring of those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and not those who have been whitewashed by self-reformation. It is the final perseverance of saints along the narrow way, along the paths of righteousness. It is their perseverance in the fight of faith and the performance of obedience. The Word of God nowhere teaches that once a man is born again, he may give free rein to the lusts of the flesh and be as worldly as he pleases, yet still be sure of getting to heaven. Instead, Scripture says, and the words are addressed to believers, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Romans 8, 13. No, if a man is born again, he will desire, purpose, and endeavor to live as becometh a child of God. There has been some deliberation in our mind as to which is the better title for this doctrine, the preservation or the perseverance of the saints. At first sight, the former seems preferable as being more honoring to God, throwing the emphasis on his keeping power. Yet, further reflection will show that such preferableness is more seeming than real. We prefer the latter because, rightly understood, it includes the former, while at the same time pressing the believer's responsibility. Moreover, we believe it is to be more in accord with the general tenor of Scripture. The saints are kept by the power of God through faith, 1 Peter 1.5. He does not deal with them as unaccountable automatons, but as moral agents, just as their natural life is maintained through their use of means and by their avoidance of that which is inimical to their well-being, so it is with the maintenance and preservation of their spiritual lives. God preserves his people in this world through their perseverance. Their use of means and avoidance of what is destructive. We do not mean for a moment that the everlasting purpose of the Most High is made contingent on the actions of the creature. The saint's perseverance is a divine gift as truly as is health and strength of body. 
the two sides of this truth, the divine and the human, are brought together in, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It is God who works in the believer both the desire and performance in using the means so that all ground for boasting is removed from him. When God begins his work of grace in a soul, the heart then turns to him in penitence and faith. And as he continues that work, the soul is kept in the exercise of its graces. As we seek to unfold this theme, our emphasis will change from time to time according as we have before us those who repudiate it and those who pervert it. When we shall treat of the divine foundations on which it rests or the safeguards by which it is protected. Oh, for wisdom to steer clear of both Arminianism and Antinomianism. Chapter 2. Its Importance. The theme of this present series of articles is far more than a theological dogma or sectarian tenet. It is an essential portion of that faith once for all delivered to the saints, concerning which we are exhorted to contend earnestly. In it is displayed, respectively, the honor and glory of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they who repudiate this truth cast a most horrible aspersion upon the character of the triune Jehovah. The final perseverance of the saints is one of grand and distinctive blessings proclaimed by the gospel, being an integral part of salvation itself, and therefore any outcry against this doctrine is an attack upon the very foundations of the believer's comfort and assurance. How can I go on my way rejoicing if there be doubts in my mind whether God will continue to deal graciously with me and complete that work which he has begun in my soul? How can I sincerely thank God for having delivered me from the wrath to come if it is quite possible I may yet be cast into hell? Above we have said that the honor and glory of Jehovah is bound up in the final perseverance of the saints. Let us now proceed to amplify that assertion. God the Father predestinated his people to be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans 8.29 Which conformity is not fully wrought in any of them in this life, but awaits the day of Christ appearing 1st John 3 2 now is the father's eternal purpose placed in jeopardy by the human will is its fulfillment contingent upon human conduct or having ordained the end will he not also make infallibly effectual all means to that end that predestination is founded upon his love I have loved thee says the father to each of his elect with an everlasting love, therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Jeremiah 31, 3. Nor is there any variation in his love, for God is not fickle like us. I am the Lord, I change not. 
Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Malachi 3, 6 Were it possible for one of God's elect to totally apostatize and finally perish, it would mean the Father had purposed something which he failed to effect and that his love was thwarted. Consider God the Son in his mediatorial character. The elect were committed unto him as a trust by the Father. Said he, Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. John 17:6. In the covenant of redemption, Christ offered to act as their surety and to serve as their shepherd. This involved the most stupendous task which the history of the universe records. The sons becoming incarnate, magnifying the divine law by rendering to it perfect obedience, pouring out his soul unto death as a sacrifice to divine justice, overcoming death and the grave, and ultimately presenting faultless before God. Jude 24, the whole of his redeemed. As the good shepherd, he died for his sheep, and as the great shepherd, it is his office to preserve them from this present evil world. If he failed in this task, if any of his sheep were lost, where would be his faithfulness to his engagement? Where would be the efficacy of his atonement? How could he triumphantly exclaim at the end, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Hebrews 2.13 The person of the Holy Spirit is equally concerned in this vital matter. It is not sufficiently realized by the saints that they are as definitely indebted to the third person of the Godhead as truly as they are to the first and second persons. The Father ordained their salvation. The Son, in his mediatorial character, purchased it, and the Spirit applies and effectuates it. It is the Blessed Spirit's work to make good the Father's purpose and the Son's atonement. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5 said Christ to his disciples, I will not leave you orphans, though I leave this world. I will come to you. John fourteen eighteen. That promise given on the eve of his death was made good in the gift of the Spirit. But the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, the same shall teach you all things. John 14:26. Christ's redeemed were thus entrusted to the love and care of the Spirit. And should any of them be lost, where would be the Spirit's sufficiency, where His power, where His faithfulness. This then is no trivial doctrine we are now concerned with, for the most momentous considerations are inseparably connected with it. We are satisfied it is because of their failure to realize this, that so many professing Christians perceive not the seriousness of their assenting to the opposing dogma of the total apostasy of saints. If they understood more clearly what was involved in affirming that some who were truly born again fell from grace, continued in a course of sin, died impenitent, and were eternally lost, they would be slower to set their seal unto that which carried such horrible implications. 
nor may we regard it as a matter of indifference where such grave consequences are concerned, for any of the elect to perish would necessarily entail a defeated father who was balked of the realization of his purpose, a disappointed son who would never see the full travail of his soul and be satisfied, and a disgraced spirit who had failed to preserve those entrusted to his care. From such awful errors may we be delivered. The importance of this truth further appears from the prominent place which is accorded it in the Holy Scriptures. Whether we turn to the Old Testament or the New, it makes no difference. Whether we consult the Psalms or the Prophets, the Gospels or the Epistles, we find it occupies a conspicuous position. If we cited every reference, we should have to transcribe literally hundreds of verses. Instead, we will quote only a few of the lesser-known ones. Here is one from the Petitich. He loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand. Deuteronomy 33.3 One from the historical books. He will keep the feet of his saints. 1 Samuel 2.8 One from Job. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job 23.10 One from the Psalms. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Psalm 138.8 One from the Proverbs. The root of the righteous shall not be moved. Proverbs 12.3 Contrast Matthew 13.21 One from the Prophets. I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Jeremiah 32.40 These are fair samples of the divine promises throughout the Old Testament. Observe the place given to this truth in the teaching of Christ. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18 False Christs and false prophets shall rise, and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if possible, even the elect. Mark 14.22 It is not possible for Satan to fatally deceive any of the elect. Whosoever cometh to me, and heareth my sayings, and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house, and digged deep, and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the storm beat vehemently upon that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. Luke six forty-seven and 48 This is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. John 6.39 The writings of the apostles are full of it. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5.10 Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? James 2, 5 Kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. 1 Peter 1, 5 They went out from us, but they were not of us, for 
If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 1 John 2.19 Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Jude 24 the tremendous importance of this doctrine is further evidenced by the fact that it involves the very integrity of the scriptures. There is no mistaking their teaching on this subject. The passages quoted above make it unmistakably plain that every section of them affirms the security of the saints. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.